Hey, Kenny here with a quick editor's note. Sam and I talked for such a long time that we decided to break it apart into two episodes, but of course, this was just one conversation that was split into two episodes, so we do recommend that you listen to part one, which will be available in whatever podcast feed that you're listening to this on. So anyway, this is part two of our discussion of On Fairy Stories. Enjoy. forward to uh, a section of the paper that that I f- I found fascinating which is his discussion of uh this this idea of the suspension of disbelief um so he doesn't like that term uh and that's because he he sees it as in some way misunderstanding the nature of how one ought to react with something like a fairy story uh and so he his his primary distinction is that between um, observing what he calls a secondary world from our primary world versus actually entering that secondary world in you know in some way uh, uh, rather than just being a simple onlooker. Um, the former example of observing the secondary world just as an observer, uh, that requires the suspension of disbelief. And he says that this is often the state of adults in the presence of a fairy story uh, where they can, observe it from a distance and sort of uh, recognize the traits of it. This, I think, would also be the mindset of someone who is deconstructing it to try and find its its bones, you know, and, and, and its structure. Uh, whereas the, the concept of actually entering that secondary world, he says, quote, if they really liked the story for itself, they would not have to suspend disbelief. They would believe. In this, in, in this is me. In this sense, he, he he means when one inhabits the secondary world rather than simply observing, there's no disbelief to suspend. They're just simply in that world where the rules of reality behave differently than in our primary world. Uh, and he gives the the funny example that I think actually really epic, works. Epic example. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna let Sam take this because he's into it. But it's of cricket enthusiasts versus himself. A real enthusiast, and I feel this on such a deep visceral level. Sam is a huge NBA fan. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I am. A real enthusiast for cricket is in the enchanted state, secondary belief. I, when I watch a match, am on the lower level. I can achieve more or less willing suspension of disbelief when I am held there and supported by some other motive that will keep away boredom. For instance, a wild heraldic preference for dark blue rather than light. This suspension of disbelief may thus be a somewhat tired, shabby, or sentimental state of mind, and so lean to the adult. I fancy it is often the state of adults in the presence of a fairy story. They are held there and supported by sentiment, memories of childhood or notions of what childhood ought to be like. They think they ought to like the tale, but if they really liked it for itself, they would not have to suspend disbelief. They would believe in this sense. And he's talking about how a real enthusiast for cricket is in the enchanted state. Sorry, is in the enchanted state, the secondary belief. Whereas him, he likes cricket, but he's not really there. He's in willing suspension of disbelief. He's observing from a distance, sort of. He's, He's enjoying cricket the same way that people enjoy Marvel movies. 
right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good it's a good point. You know, I think he he's saying that the the real enthusiasts are are invested in a in a particular way where they're within the story of the game. When I was watching Celtics Heat a few nights ago, I was in the same state of enchantment that I reach um, when I'm reading the Silmarillion, right? Like there is a, I am in, I am in the secondary world and it's hard to totally analogize, but because he does it, I would, I would not have made this analogy if he didn't first, um, or at least I wouldn't on the pod. Although I constantly do. I say to, I'm constantly telling my friends, like not with Lord of the Rings necessarily, but that like a lot being into a lot of sports, if you're really into it is sort of like being enraptured by a fantasy story. That when you're truly locked in by a story, you don't think it's real in the sense that you're like, I'll walk outside and I'll see elves. A well-crafted secondary world where you're there and it matters the same way that I'm in the arena and the outcome of this game that has genuinely no bearing on my life actually matters. And in the same capacity, nationalism is also secondary belief. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes what tolkien does not make that connection but that is and i didn't think of that that's fantastic though yeah so so he goes on to talk about to what extent you like quote believe that something is is able to happen in the story is able to happen in in real life or in our primary our primary world and he says quote at no time can i remember that the enjoyment of a story was dependent on belief that such things could happen or had happened in real life fairy stories were plainly not primarily concerned with possibility but with desirability that i think is another sort of uh thesis statement is that the point of a fairy story is never to explain to you how such things are possible, which, like Sam, like you mentioned earlier, is something that a lot of more recent modern fantasy novels are uh, perhaps guilty of, is delving too deep into the mechanics of their world. Um, It's about desirability. And the idea is that when you inhabit this secondary world, what's possible in our world is just completely irrelevant. And you can glimpse these, uh, uh, you know, more clearly fundamental human desires and urges and and dreams um there's a a a fairly long quote that i want to read that kind of gets at this and it goes through a bunch of the different examples of things that are not fairy stories from from his perspective and then things that are uh or are sort of nearing fairy stories i'll also say in this quote uh he does use a, a a particularly british and uh old term for american indians it would be it's it's offensive now but this i believe was like the common way that the brits would refer to indigenous americans uh and so this was it would not have been a controversy it it would actually have probably been like a completely acceptable phrase to use in an academic lecture like this so that will be in this quote just fair warning quote I had no desire to have either dreams or adventures like Alice, and the amount of them merely amused me. I had very little desire to look for buried treasure or fight pirates, and Treasure Island left me cool. Red Indians were better. There were bows and arrows. I had and have a wholly unsatisfied desire to shoot well with a bow. And strange languages and glimpse of an archaic mode of life, and above all, forests in such stories." But the land of Merlin and Arthur was better than these, and best of all, the nameless north of Sigurd and the Volsungs, and the prince of all dragons. 
I desired dragons with a profound desire. Of course, I and my timid body did not wish to have them in the neighborhood, intruding into my relatively safe world, but the world that contained even the imagination of Fafner was richer and more beautiful at whatever cost of peril. That, I think, is another excellent summary of what he's talking about here, uh, is that another reason that Alice in Wonderland... Uh, he's not considering it a, a fairy story or, uh, you know, stories of of the of, of warring pirates uh, or of kind of classic like cowboys and Indian stories. These are all mythical to some extent, uh, to, to varying extents, I should say. But uh, he's basically saying, you know, none of those things I really desire that much. But I do definitely desire to be in a world where dragons could exist. I also appreciate that he says, you know, I don't want them. He, he's kind of like a dragon nimby. Yes, he is a dragon nimby. <laughs> he's, he says, I don't want them in my neighborhood, but I want to be in a world. That's like if I said, I don't want the, you know, these new housing units in my neighborhood. I want them to exist somewhere. I just want to say that I also... At night when I can't sleep, just think about, like, the Volsungs. Very normal. Like, I <laughs> I will – sometimes I'll just – and Kenny knows this. I will sometimes, if I really can't sleep, I'll put on the Silmarillion on audiobook. But sometimes I'll also just, like, think about, like, like Fafnir versus the dragon. You tell yourself a bedtime story. I do. That's what it – that's – I was thinking about this recently. How it is also sort of weird that bedtime stories are for kids. Because reading a bedtime story is awesome. It's 100%. Bedtime stories need to be need to be normalized. Decriminalize bedtime yeah, stories. Yeah, decriminalize bed. I don't know if we need like to actually empower their sale. Um, oh no, no. I mean, we need to we need to decriminalize the uh, the act of telling and listening to bedtime stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can get behind that. I think. Whatever their source. I mean, my dad, when I was when I was a kid, my dad would make up bedtime stories and they were awesome, like completely made up just off the dome where I would be like, tell me about, the, you know, the dragon. Whereas and dear listeners, this is a peek behind uh, the hood. My dad would read to me Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, Sam was indoctrinated from an early age. Yes. <laughs> I think you've mentioned that before. It's a, it's a great it's a great fact. But yeah, my dad would just like make up sort of, you know imaginative stories and uh, he could respond when i would ask questions about like well what happened to this person and then he would just you know make up some nonsense about whatever happened That's to awesome. that person i want to do that but not the kids just to people <laughs> find people on the street convince them to come home with me and tell force them to listen to my ramblings <laughs> or i pull up i sometimes like do write short stories air quotes in like my notes app also, uh-huh. when I can't fall asleep, maybe I'll just read those. <laughs> yeah, you, you start reading them and it's just incoherent ramblings. Like as you try, as you desperately try to explain what you mean. <laughs> One of my many like a borderline manifestos. So we're, we're a little bit far afield, but do you want to talk about his hilarious discussion of uh, drama or stage plays? Yeah, I'm down to talk about drama. This one was actually the one that I was like, fuck, like... I've lost the plot because he's right and I'm wrong. Oh. <laughs> I'll get into that. I didn't know you for being super into like stage plays. No, I'm not. But th- all of this applies to movies. That's why I said the drama section has unfortunately aged too well and almost it makes me almost guilty. <laughs> it doesn't make me guilty because I think he's sort of wrong, actually. But it does. I don't, yeah. 
No, but mo- movies are movies are distinct from stage plays in You're a right. lot of ways. He, movies when he was writing this, he doesn't even mention movies. But yeah. movies when he was writing this were not actually I don't think that distinct from stage plays. Most of the stuff you were doing on screen, what you could also do on stage with the same I mean, this is nice. I don't know. I've watched some early movies recently that are pretty crazy, but no, I agree. But like 1939 was the wizard of Oz, which is, you know, a fantastic movie. Uh, and lots of wonderful things are happening, but there is also a wizard of Oz stage play that I think is, it, it has the same, it's the same story. And it's, I don't, I think it's less effective, but still uh, movies now though, I don't think are analogous to stage play I agree. in the same way. I agree. So, but yeah, go, go ahead. We're, we're talking not about movies right now. Yes. So he talks about um, drama and he says, it is a misfortune that drama, an art fundamentally distinct from literature, should be com- should co- so commonly be considered together with it or as a branch of it. Among these misfortunes, we may reckon the deprecation of fantasy. For in part, at least, this deprecation is due to the natural desire of critics to cry up the forms of literature, or, quote, imagination, unquote, that they themselves innately or by training, I love that, or by training, prefer. And he goes on, and he talks about how, quote, drama is naturally hostile to fantasy. Fantasy, even of the simplest kind, hardly ever succeeds in drama. Um, and one of his examples, which I actually really like and relate to deeply, was Macbeth. It's short. It's really his only point is that he likes the witches as they're written in if he's reading Macbeth, he likes the portrayal of the witches and he he thinks they're a little bit corny, but he thinks they're they're good. And then he basically just thinks it's horribly cringe when it's on stage and he he hates it actually watching it because <clears throat> it it ruins like it ru- it ruins his experience of reading it and being you know and, and being in in that world. It's a different sort of like being transported into a world when you're watching actual people do it on a stage. And I also sort of have an anti-play bias. That's not really relevant, but (laughs) (laughs) my whole life, I haven't really liked plays or musicals that much. There's notable exceptions to this. Can I think of any? Actually, no. But I know I've seen plays, which I like. But even when I think of a musical I like, I was like, oh, I liked La La Land, which is also sort of a hot take. But like... I don't know. That's not a hot take. No, I know so many people who fucking hate La La Land. I think it's gas. I mean, though. I don't really, I don't really like La La Land that I much, but so I don't d- dislike it. I well, think it's, it's really fine. what it really is is just like a good rom com. But um, yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about whether or not I agree with this for movies. About whether I watch a really good movie and it can affect me the way fantasy does in a novel. I actually think no, but I think it can get really, really close. Um, or be good in a different way. The Lord of the Rings movies are amazing. But they don't achieve the same sense of, like, pure transportation to the fairy realm that I get when I'm reading the books. I totally agree. That being said, have I ever seen a play like Macbeth where I'm like, oh, I'm really there? Like, hell no. Twelve Angry Men is really good, right? But it's not trying to transport me to another realm. So it works. But I do think that... Like drama that's fantastical for me doesn't hit. I'm imagining you sitting in the audience for a uh, you know some some high art performance of Hamlet and just at, like leaving halfway through because you're like that guy just isn't the Prince of Denmark. Like he just isn't. <laughs> I still haven't seen the Joel Cohen directed 
uh, Macbeth adaptation starring Denzel Washington. I will watch that. The like best director ever and like the best actor ever are doing it. Maybe it'll hit and maybe I'll believe it. So I will do that. That is a promise to the listeners. Here's the thing. I really like Hamlet and I really like Macbeth. I uh, like reading them. Exactly. That's what I mean. I'm not going to sit and watch it because no. I'm going to be bored. I agree. <laughs> it's going to be boring my and not mom, fun. Me, my mom thinks this is like a sacrilegious take. Well, your mom is wrong. I agree. <laughs> but I, I will, I will, like, I will watch the Joel Cohen, Denzel Washington Macbeth. Because if there was ever a Macbeth where I'll be like, that guy's not just a dude, it's actually the Prince of Denmark. It would be Denzel Washington. So, <laughs> like, genuinely, that's my actual take. No, I know. He's, yeah, he is great. If, like, one of the, like, ten best actors of all time, and in my opinion, one of the ten best directors of all time are doing it, like, we'll see. I mean, it's only going to be half a good movie, though. It's not both of the Coens. Oh, true. You need both of them for their full powers. But anyway, another thing he brings up about drama uh, of course, this is all drama with a capital D, meaning like stage plays. He says, quote, very little about trees as trees can be got into a play. And just like we were talking about earlier with Beast Fables and um, and the dream, dream stories, d- drama in this sense is by definition very anthrocentric. It, it has to be people just by definition. People have to be the ones who are driving the action they're the ones that are acting on stage you know and he says fairy story and fantasy need not be you can have these mythical creatures that you can't really see and and you could you should only be able to imagine in a sort of nebulous far away sort of way that uh they're the ones like that may be driving the story like if there are elves in the background doing all sorts of things when just the protagonist is a person i think it would be a lot harder to do that in a stage play or a movie, any visual medium in in this case, where you're not having everything be just very uh, human driven. And there, there actually is a, a tangential point. Sam, I don't know if you read any of the end notes. I did not. I did not. Okay. So I'm, I'm glad because there's something really funny that he brings up in the end notes that I actually think is related. It's related to this idea of being able to see the the, the world and the things that inhabit it. I think in a lot of ways he thinks that just the very act of like showing too much can ruin it. And I- I'm just going to read this quote, which I find very funny. And it's it's about, of all things, whether you should include a border on the page that has an illustration of a fairy story. <laughs> and he goes so hard on this, and it's so good. He says, quote, It was an irresistible development of modern illustration, so largely photographic, that borders should be abandoned and the, quote, picture end end only with the paper. This method may be suitable for photographs, but it is altogether inappropriate for the pictures that illustrate or are inspired by fairy stories. An enchanted forest requires a margin, even an elaborate border. To print it coterminous with the page, like a shot of the Rockies in picture post, as if it were indeed a snap of fairyland or a, quote, sketch by our artist on the spot, unquote, is a folly and an abuse. (laughs) He's so right. 
And he is, I know, I, I was laughing reading that because folly and an abuse is like such strong language. But I completely agree with what he's saying. I would have never We're, thought of this. Same, same, exactly. Like this never ever would have even entered my imagination. But it's like, if I'm imagining in a, a, a fantasy book or something, and there's like a hyper-realistic portrayal of the world, and it's just like, and it, it's supposed to look like a photograph, I'd be like, ew, gross. Like, that's not what this looks like. It doesn't, it, like, in my head, it doesn't even, the world doesn't even look like reality. It's its own thing, you know? It might, it's, it's impressionistic in, in a sort of way. I loved that point. And I think that it's directly related to why he seemingly hates stage plays, which he's so real for. Yeah, he is, he is. It's such a good take. I want to go back just briefly to what we talked about earlier uh, on the concept of escape. Um, like I said, he doesn't, I mentioned it briefly, at least. He doesn't like the idea that escape is is a bad thing. He, he says he doesn't accept the tone of scorn or pity with which the word is uh, so often used. And he, he gives the incredible example, which I just love, a, man, a person who's in prison, why should we look down on them if they try to escape and go home? Uh, which I just think it's so it's so evocative and also just kind of it's so based in a particular way. That analogy, in a way, strikes me as actually being like kind of liberatory and progressive. I agree. Know? I agree completely. There's something transhumanist about it. Yeah, it it doesn't strike me as a sort of conservative sentiment. You can you can tie that to like queer theory stuff pretty easily. One hundred percent. And, and he says what I like even more. So I'll read the whole quote. Why should a man be scorned if finding himself in prison, he tries to get out and go home? Or if when he cannot do so, he thinks and talks about topics other than jailers and prison walls. The world outside has not become less real because the prisoner cannot see it. And then he, he also says that critics who dismiss this idea of escape he says they're confusing the escape of the prisoner with the flight of the deserter which i love right the idea that a prisoner is sort of a a victim of circumstance the deserter is someone who is completely leaving what might be called like the primary world that might be where you get a little bit more of the conservative or tory-ish impulse right of this idea of desertion as being you know is is being one of one of the high crimes that you that one can commit right but still the idea of the escape of the prisoner and and him revealing this sort of liberatory message i was surprised and 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 you know pleasantly surprised by i think and then tolkien continues this quote that kenny just cited just so a party spokesman might have labeled departure from the misery of the Führers or any other reich and even criticism of it as treachery in the same way, these critics, to make confusion worse, and so to bring into contempt their own opponents, stick the label of score not only to desertion, but on to real escape. And what he's saying right here is that escapism can be politically progressive or transgressive, or depending on who you are, even reactionary. But it, it has real potentiality for change right? You can imagine yourself in a different world. And that's why he uses the example of someone <laughs> complaining about Hitler, right? Yeah. It's, it, you know, as, as you scorn escape as a practice of reading literature, you, by extent, scorn the concept of escape at all and escape from a bad 
you know, circumstance, like, I mean, Hitler, of course, is the most extreme example, right? But like the, the it is a kind of a common trait of like a hyper-realist uh, modern sort of conception, right? Where it's like, you shouldn't be reading things that are escapist because like, why? That's a waste of time. You should be productive and you should be, you know, in our modern world. And of course, for- It's like they for, live, you know, consume, yeah, procreate. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and of course, for- for the Nazis, it would have also been like, you know, why are you reading this escapist stuff when you could be, you know, assisting in our ethnic cleansing? Yeah. And it's also one of those things where I think in a lot of political commentary today, it's like, why are you doing escapism instead of focusing on the horrors of reality? But what Tolkien here is saying is that escapism can be a way to imagine a better society and that that is productive. Exactly. I think the only example of it that I do think is bad is Elon Musk wanting to go to Mars. And that's mostly just because I fucking hate that guy. Yes, I agree. Well, there's multiple forms of it. Like the rich wanting to leave on their own is not the same escapism as imagining a more just world and then taking that into your daily life and political practice. Of course. I'm I'm also joking. Yeah. About th- I mean, well, I'm not joking about hating him and thinking that it's dumb, but did you get uh, yeah, that ad during the Super Bowl? Which one? The boycott Elon Musk ad? No, I didn't see that. I so I saw it and I googled it. I didn't I realized it didn't air in all media markets, but there was an ad oh. from an anti-self-driving car nonprofit. Holy shit. We did so funny that of all the reasons to boycott Elon Musk, that is this nonprofit's reason. Yeah, I mean based in some ways. <laughs> but the least based version of being anti-Musk, I'd say. No, uh there's a I think the least based version of being anti-musk is that you hate evs period and hate like and you are just pro fossil fuel oh true true instrumentally <laughs> useful but yeah there was a boycott or, that, he's, or that he is from the continent of africa <laughs> no no one has that take because if you're a white person from africa and you're a if you're like a white supremacist you see elon musk and you think based boer yeah true 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 they would probably say that to the extent that they're not like you know scratching their own assholes and like looking at them in the mirror yes licking their own (laughs) shit if when they're not busy having sexual intercourse with feet it is all scatological honestly like they're obsessed with dirtiness they're obsessed with like immigrants are dirty but it's all like a it's all a fetish because they're ashamed that they want to fuck dirt so they start saying that people are dirt The other day, I was diving deep into Hitler's Wikipedia page, and <laughs> hell yeah, I was, I, there was one part I was reading. You know about all of the like, all of the stuff that's just true about how he was just like syphilitic, addicted to amphetamines and barbiturates, and just constantly zooted off of his mind. Had Parkinson's, yes. and there was there was uh, you know of course like CIA or I guess Central Intelligence. It wasn't the CIA yet. Uh, like reports about Hitler that um, <laughs> were basically just like talking, like trying to give, you know, the American military like a sense of his of his psychological profile. Right. And of course, they all painted him as like a psychopath and all the stuff, which is just true. And then there was other stuff that was like and he loves getting shit on. He has a he has a shit fetish like he loves pooping and shitting, which I don't think that there's any there's I don't think there's any historical evidence for, which makes it funnier. That's so funny. Like, the CIA was just like, this guy loves shit. Like, and, and there's, like, there's 
no evidence for it. I wanted to, the last thing I wanted to talk about is, uh, of course, he goes, Tolkien, as he always does in, in, in any, anything that he ever wrote, what I would call unseriously, of course, uh, eco-terrorist mode. Not that unseriously. He wouldn't have taken direct action. <laughs> no. But he would be sad. That's really kind of what it extended to, is that he would be sad about the spoiling of the English countryside and then be like, this sucks. I'm sad about it. Can't really do anything about it. But to any newer listeners, it's necessary to emphasize that his, like, extreme environmentalism is also, like, weird and reactionary. Yeah, which, as as it is with uh, a lot of these, like, British like chesterton is like that yes. you know they they all have this sort of environmentalist kind of back to the land in some ways affect to to their, their it's a little fascist i don't think tolkien's perception of it is really fascist really at all maybe no, a tiny no. bit but like the yeah some of them it, it does it, it it is more reactionary and and a little bit more dangerous but for this ways. real life he wants to what was this real life that he wanted to escape from kenny yeah so 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 he recounts this story where, which it's, it's kind of funny because he's kind of doing the Trump thing. That's like many people are saying, yes. but he, <laughs> he, he recounts a story where he says he heard a clerk in Oxford talk about how he, uh, quoting the clerk, welcomed, and then now quoting Tolkien, self-obstructive mechanical traffic and mass production robot factories. <laughs> Which is so good, and, and and because they, and now quoting the clerk again, brought his university into contact with real life. And he, Tolkien kind of does the thing of like, you hear this guy? What the hell is he? What the hell is this? And he says, again, quote, the notion that motor cars are more alive than, say, centaurs or dragons is curious. That they are more real than, say, horses is pathetically absurd. How real, how startlingly alive is a factory chimney compared with an elm tree? Poor obsolete thing, insubstantial dream of an escapist. He also says, talking about escapism, for a trifling instance, not to mention, indeed not to parade, electric street lamps of mass-produced pattern in your tail is escape. His example of escapism is if you don't, quote, parade electric street lamps... That's escapism. But it may, almost certainly does proceed from a considered disgust. (laughs) But it may, almost certainly does proceed from a considered disgust for so typical a product of the robot age that combines elaboration and ingenuity of means with ugliness and often with inferiority of result. These lamps may be excluded from the tale simply because they are bad lamps. And it is possible that one of the lessons to be learned from the story is the realization of this fact. But out comes the big stick. Electric lamps have come to stay, they say. Long ago, Chesterton truly remarked that as soon as he heard that anything had, quote, come to stay, he knew that it would very soon be replaced, indeed regarded as pitiably obsolete and shabby. I regret to inform Tolkien from beyond the grave that he was wrong, <laughs> and electric lamps actually were, as of 1940, here to stay. <laughs> very true, very true. Although they have gone through some iterations. No, they've changed, but the basic fact Not of that an much. electric Not that lamp, much. they've gotten more efficient. Yeah. They're yeah, LEDs which you, now. 
Right, which, I mean, you know, I think he's ambivalent about, but probably doesn't like, <laughs> you know. I think if you pressed him, he'd probably prefer an LED to the street lamps, he said, because it causes less trees to be destroyed. I think one of the funniest quotes of the whole thing, of the whole paper, the paper's not, like, funny, but of course, there are parts of it that are funny, uh, at least to Sam and I, um, he, it's, it's the, in this same section, I've truncated it a little bit to get to the parts that I think are, uh, relevant and, and, and go together well. Uh, but he, he's, he's going from the sarcastic mode of what I was reading about, you know, about how, uh, an elm tree is an insubstantial dream for an escapist. Uh, This is also related directly to the concept of escape, which we were talking about earlier. He says, quote, Why should we not escape from or condemn the Morlockian horror of factories? They are condemned even by the writers of that most escapist form of all literature, stories of science fiction. These prophets often foretell, and many seem to yearn for, a world like one big glass-roofed railway station, in which men will mainly play with mechanical toys in the soon game of moving at high speed <laughs> the, the game of moving at high speed is what killed me that's him dismissing trains cars commercial flight wasn't that big at this time but commercial flight too <laughs> you know like, it's also just, there's maybe an element of catholic guilt here if you know about his history with cars and motorcycles because he went through a period where he loved driving them and he loved to speed Oh, yeah, you like to go around corners at high speeds and, you know, go for joy rides and stuff. And then Sp- Carpenter mentions in the biography specifically as he started to like basically as he became as he became more praxis pilled. He was like, man, these cars are not do- doing good things for the places that I like. It's it's so much louder here now and it's dirtier and there's, you know, there's soot everywhere from all this gasoline and and it's it's it sucks. I'm 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 foregoing my car and I'm going to bicycle everywhere. He also says relating to this and I have to read this part. It's just too good. For my part, I can cannot I cannot convince myself that the roof of Bletchley station is more quote real than the clouds. As an artifact, I find it less inspiring than the legendary dome of heaven. The bridge to Platform 4 is, to me, less interesting than Bifrost guarded by Heimdall with the Gjallhorn. <laughs> From the wilderness of my heart, I cannot exclude the question of whether railway engineers, if they had been brought up on more fantasy, might not have done better with all their abundant means than they commonly do. Fairy stories might be, I guess, better masters of arts than the academic person I have referred to. Now, I will say, as someone who does uh, public transportation stuff, to some extent, uh, for my 9 to 5, <laughs> I I will be bringing fairy stories more into my daily life. <laughs> I'll, be writing, I'll be writing more white papers where I tell Amtrak they have to, uh, they have to think about dragons more frequently when they design uh, railways. And then, one other thing, and this is where <laughs> he gets a little more reactionary. And if we leave aside for a moment fantasy, I do not think that the reader or the maker of fairy stories need even be ashamed of the escape of archaism, of preferring not dragons, but horses, castles, sailing ships, bows, and arrows, not only elves, but knights and kings and priests. For it is after all possible for a rational man, after reflection, quite unconnected with fairy story or romance, to arrive at the condemnation, implicit at least in the mere silence of escapist literature, of progressive things, 
like factories or the machine guns and bombs they that appear to be their natural and inevitable, dare we say, inexorable products. <laughs> and on the one hand, I agree that machine guns and bombs are bad. But on the other hand, I don't know if I really want uh, knights and kings again. Yes, 100%. I, in fact, I would go further. I actually agree that machine guns and bombs are the inexorable destiny of industrialization. I don't know that I do. That I mean, fair enough. I think that it, it, in the sense that it's human nature to have these, you know, tribal conflicts, I think that... Is it, though? Perhaps not. I think that there's not that many instances where it hasn't happened in there, human Not history. many, but there are some. <laughs> I, I think that it's human nature in the same way earlier that you were arguing that, you know, for children, being imaginative is human nature, right? I think that it's... it's a, you can draw it as a broad enough conclusion that people are always fighting over stuff. This is this and is um, this is very Hobbesian, which is mostly right, I think, but not completely right. I, I agree. We can minimize the extent to, or we can attempt to minimize and make it the center of our political project to minimize the extent to which people are fighting. But it's always something that which is they, what the political project at its core originates as. Exactly. Exactly. Of course. Which is also it, it's, Hobbes. It's it's also something that I, I don't know. I I think it, it's kind of a foreign concept to think that it is not in human nature to, or or in the nature of our societies in some way, at least as they have developed. And it's no use, I don't think, talking about theoretical societies that don't have their basis in the societies that currently exist. I completely disagree because that's that's the use of escapism. You can imagine a society that doesn't have war and then chart out how we get there. I, su- I suppose that's true, but the, the I think the problem with it is that to get there, you still need to work with what we currently have in the real world. Yes, but the whole point is imagined futures. You, you can read compelling fantasy or science fiction that doesn't have these things and say that's attainable, or even going into human... I mean, you can find examples of human societies that were largely absent conflict or war. I disagree that you can find examples that were largely absent conflict. War, sure. Or, or, conf- or violent violent conflict, I should say. Or violence. I yeah, okay, yes. So, I, I, I mean, inexorable of industrialism as it emerged in 18th century Europe, I think that's true. But I don't think that industrialism in a vacuum inherently leads to machine guns. Okay, fair enough. I don't think, I just, I'm not really interested in the argument, and that argument, because I don't think it matters. I think it sort of does, because if you're charting out a future where you're trying to say the goal is to ameliorate the conditions that produce war, it's useful to think of how things could have been done differently on a social level to have produced a society where these patterns of of organized violence don't emerge that no that's true i agree with that the i think that like you're saying i think the hobbesian conceit um which i i I guess that i might just agree with a little bit more than you do which is fine what it really comes down to is that tolkien is both sort of a reactionary and sort of an anarchist and you sort of have to on some level be an anarchist of any variety to buy the no factories or, or factories without war. Well, I'm putting this poorly, but but it really comes to it, it, mileage will vary based on your how much you buy anarchism on any level. Yeah, 100%. And and to be clear also, I guess what I am trying to say is that if you accept the Hobbesian conceit, right, that it's it's the nature of human societies to 
like feud with each other and in the political project should be to minimize how and and you know and it obviously tend toward completely eliminating those feuds then it would it would sort of stand to reason that the that uh progresses in sort of the fruits of civilization like industrialization and and the mass you know mass production and all of the things that that came about uh you know through the 19th and 20th centuries and and earlier to an extent as well that those will serve uh to both increase the uh you know in, in again ideally increase the standard of living of people or or whatever increase the amount of uh, uh you know economists would just say like gdp <laughs> yeah increase the gdp per capita right and which would you know extend to more fulfilled lives and more uh you know longer longevity greater health etc uh but if you accept this premise that that people are inherently going to feud with one another often at societal levels it'll also increase the means by which they can you know efficiently annihilate one another i don't think it's completely wrong well i would also say the answer to this is or the response to this if you're not going to do like an anarchist one which i am sympathetic to but oh this is also an anarchist one is just the like the vulgar marxist take that Mm -hmm. you get to industrialism and then you do socialism and through socialist industrialization, you are able to then achieve a sustainable anarchic society free of war and violence. But that the earlier stages of industrialism and industrial warfare are instrumental to the later development of the anarchic peaceful society. Yes, yes. And so that agrees with the premise that industrialization as it occurred and as it, when Marx was writing, was occurring, was sort of this, you know, this new period moving out of a more feudalistic period of kings and and, and nobility and aristocracy into this period of capitalism where there is greater prosperity, but we're also increasing the means by which we can kill each other and oppress each other in, in, in various ways. And then you move out of that into the the, the the period of socialism, which then the premise that you can eliminate human conflict. Um, or well, it, what it really is, is you can then eliminate the state and that eliminates conflict. Although I would say, I would say that I don't think that belief has really been orthodox for a long time. But this is, this is where a lot of what I was thinking about actually today, because I was just reread The Dispossessed um, by Le Guin. And that's her imagining this sort of and I mean, it has its problems, but a lot of it's imagining this future science fiction, anarchic, socialist, sort of utopian, but not really society that's largely free from property and violence. Um, and and I, I guess what I was also thinking of is that science fiction. It's not a fairy story, but it is useful. I read that and I think it's easier to imagine I should also say for all of this, like, I am, like, a statist. Like, I'm really into bureaucracy and taxes. <laughs> like, I am, like... Same. Very much so. I am, like, definite... Like, I am, like... Like, I do technocracy as a nine-to-five. But but I do think that uh, it is at least useful to imagine how we can get to a more Tolkien-esque or um, anarchic society uh, free yeah. from machine guns. 
Which is what he's saying. I think there's use in that escapist. I, I, I agree 100%. The, the, I was just going to say one last thing about it is that the, um, I think that the two things that, at least for, from my perspective, that I sort of believe at once, I totally agree that it is a useful, it's very useful. In fact, I would say it's like crucial to have these imaginative portrayals of various, you know, utopian societies and, and worlds, stories that, and, and, and people who imagine you like utopian visions of the world. And I think that I hold that in my head at the same time as I guess what is, what is kind of a, a Catholic conceit in some ways that you will never achieve a world that doesn't have conflict at, you know, large scales in some way in my view, but that your political project should be to approach that and to minimize and to, you know, attempt to achieve a world that's free of conflict. Cause in so doing, you know, that's how you maximize like the, what is good in the world, I guess. I, I think it's a, I think it's a distinction without much of a difference to talk about whether we want to minimize, minimize the amount of, you know, large scale conflict or we want to completely eliminate it. I think it's just based on your premise of at some level, it's based on your concept of human nature in some way and also this is the more reactionary one in your belief of the capacity of people to actually change the world they live in at all yes which i think i think i think i i i have a decent belief in i think as i think as progressives or people who are left of center you have to believe that yes and i think and i think that has been true for the last hundred years Oh, one hundred percent. I don't know. Th- it wasn't as true before then. It no, was still true. It was, but it's certainly been more true over the last hundred years. Absolutely, it has. One of the ways that we do live in a in a uh, a relatively better time. Shout out uh, Social Security. Shout out um, Stephen Pinker and his book about why we're less violent. <laughs> oh my god! That just I said that. Me up a wall. I said that just to trigger you. I know. Oh my, I hate him so much. <laughs> oh my god the the funniest thing with, i know i've said before but the funniest thing with all of that is like the reason we're less violent is because now there's a random chance that any war can trigger the downfall of the human civilization that yeah that is a that is a big part of it at the at the you know grand scale and it's like oh like the reason why the soviet union and the united states didn't do a war which killed like literally hundreds of millions of people was because there was a chance that the entire species would die in a matter of hours <laughs> So that's the wonderful trade-off we've arrived at. Sam, we, you know, the the the, the problem is that they the, the reason they weren't doing it is because they couldn't allow a bunker gap. Do you remember? <laughs> yes. From, from Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> that is that is like the best movie of all time. That's the it's certainly the best movie about like the politics of nuclear war. Certainly the best movie about it's it's God, I love that movie. The with the, the you know, the cowboy pilot yeah, oh, it's so good. It's so accurate. Oh, and it's it's also you can't we can't allow a mineshaft gap. That's what yes, it is. Mineshaft. Not bunker. It's mineshaft. And so, sort of ending the podcast, <laughs> the consolation of fairy stories, the jo- the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn. This joy, which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist nor fugitive. In its fairy tale or other world setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, and insofar is evangelium, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, 
joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. Beautifully read. I think that's a great place to uh, to uh, end the episode, or I should say episodes, because this is definitely uh, now part two of a two-part episode. Uh, this is a fantastic discussion. As always, Sam, thanks for taking all this time out of your busy Monday to uh, to talk about um, to talk about this this fantastic essay. Yeah, it was wonderful. Alrighty, we'll talk to you next time, listeners. Bye bye. Bye. or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.